Good morning. We live in wicked times, in dark days, and it's pretty clear that if we read our newspapers, we're going to find out that the world is exactly, well, as it's always been. It's not really all that different. We have a tendency to think in terms of the good times, and maybe there were better days in in which we lived in the 50s, maybe in the 80s, but at the end of the day, let's be honest with ourselves, man has been wicked from the very beginning. And we're going to see that that is true in our study today. As we open, I want to read a scripture that I think you'll find enlightening. In the book of Romans, in chapter 1 and in verse 28, Paul, speaking of the wickedness of his day, which was as wicked as the day in which we live, writes, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, and they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, and they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I want to hone in on one particular sin that's mentioned here that maybe didn't jump out at you. But how about this one? They disobey their parents. We should probably bring the whole Sunday school in here for this one. <laughs> There's a list there of many evils that our world is experiencing, and it's, it's interesting to me that along with some of these very awful sins, you have sins like gossip, which I basically take all of social media and put it in the category of gossip. By the way, what, what about social media today isn't gossip? What, what part of what goes on online really isn't gossip? Almost all of it is. I'm, I'm, maybe there's an example of something that isn't. But the way I look at it, it's gossip.com. It's hashtag gossip and slander. And people just continue to do it. But the other one that I looked at that almost seemed like it didn't belong on the list was disobedient to parents or disobeying parents. We think, well, you're going to put that up there with murder and evil and all kinds of wickedness? Yeah, because it's where it begins. And and we're going to see in our study today that when you consider the lack of respect that children have for their elders and and their parents in particular, that, that is the foundation of a kind society of a merciful society, of a good society. When you start with a respect, a basic respect for the family unit, when you you look at the fact that there's a father and a mother in the home and the children respect their parents, that takes from that point on respect for elders and respect for others and respect for themselves throughout their entire lives. So I do think it's worthy of being on this list of very bad sins I also think it's worth taking a look at as we look at Genesis today in chapter 9 and remembering that the man who compiled these historical accounts is also the man 
Moses that gave us the Ten Commandments. Now, of course, they came from God, but, but one of those commandments you'll remember is honor your father and mother. And it's the first commandment that comes with a promise, Paul tells us, and the promise is this, that it may go well with you in the land. Isn't it interesting, when you, when you step away as a society from honoring fathers and mothers, honoring the family unit, it doesn't go well with you in the land. I, I'm going to say something that might seem a little ridiculous, but I think if we could address that one sin, it would trickle down and affect all of the other sins on that list. Because the lack of respect for parents means the lack of a good family structure, the lack of the family unit, the lack of the family home, and all of those things are the foundation of a kind and good society. So as we consider that one sin, being disobedient, or as Moses recorded in the book of Exodus in chapter 20, God gave him this command, honor your father and mother that it might go well with you in the land. Let's keep in mind, uh, this, this is a sin. And it's not any less important than some of the other sins on that list, including lying and murder and adultery. And so as we look at the account of Noah, right after the flood, you're going to see that already, almost immediately, or within a short period of time after the flood, already we once again see that there is a lack of respect for parents, which, of course, is the sin nature, which, of course, carries forward to all of the sin we see in our society today. But let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we are grateful that you've given us a blueprint for having a good life. And maybe we can't control society, we can't control our culture, we can't control what goes on in all different parts of the world. But within our family structures, we can insist that respect is found in the home. Lord God, I pray that as we look at this account, that we would understand the importance of respecting not only our parents, but our elders, and of developing a society where children are kind and good to one another. And maybe this is the only way that we, as a free society, can affect change. But Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit. And I pray for all of our parents, that you'd give them the ability to communicate this. And I pray for all of our children who are working so hard to prepare themselves for the Christmas service next week. And also, all of them are in Sunday school, learning these principles from your word. We pray for our children, that they would understand this and many lessons, that they might do a better job than we're doing, and bring hope and true change to our society and peace to our culture, and blessing to our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in chapter 9 in the book of Genesis and in verse 1. And we're going to see that God blessed Noah and his sons and their descendants after the flood. Let's take a look at the first seven verses. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They're given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal 
and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. And as for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Now, this is simply God's blessing, and we're going to see there's a promise, a covenant that comes next, but this is simply God's blessing upon Noah and his sons and their wives and all of the animals and all those that survived the flood on the ark. God blessed them, but he blessed them with a totally changed environment. And it's important. We've talked so much about the antediluvian world or the pre-flood world and how it was so different than the world we live in today. And we've we've talked a lot about that, so I don't really want to get so much into that. I want us to look now at the world that we live in, which really started at this time. After the flood, the world was very different in so many ways. And here he called them to reproduce and increase their numbers on the earth because they had been reduced to an uninfected sample of just eight human beings, eight souls, and two of every animal and seven of every clean animal and bird. And they, they had what they needed, the building blocks of life. It's probable that when God created all of life in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, that it did start with just two of every animal. And certainly it was man and woman, and they were able to populate the earth to a great extent uh, by the time of the flood. But now he had caused all animal life on the earth and in the sea to fear mankind Uh, There needed to be a change. Uh, This would have protected the animals from from man as well as mankind from the animals. One of the blessings, I think, is that most really dangerous animals are more afraid of us than we are of them. Most, I say, because once like a, a grizzly bear gets a taste for human meat, they have to kill that bear because then that bear has lost its fear. In fact, it now looks at men and women as as food. And so whether it be a grizzly bear or a brown bear or some other animal, a wild animal, once it no longer has an overwhelming fear of man, is a danger. By the way, uh, it seems to me sharks, I, don't, I, I would never want to swim with the shark, so to speak. Uh, there are some people that do that. Uh, God bless you. Um, but I will say this, that it seems to me that the predators in the sea are in a different category. They don't seem to be afraid of anything, certainly, and they're not afraid of surfers. Uh, That seems to be the case recently. But when we're talking about the land-based animals, there is a fear that most animals have, except the deer in my neighborhood. Uh, They have become rather comfortable looking at me from six feet away and saying, I'm not going to stop eating your plants. Deal with it. You know, you took all my, all my grazing land and you took all the woods, uh, you're building homes all over the place. Well, now I have to eat your, your plants. And they do that. And I feel badly for them. Not that badly, though. <laughs> but generally, animals have this, this built-in fear, and that's God's doing to protect them and to protect us. This would have included all the birds, all, actually, the marine life certainly uh, is in a different category, yet it it does seem to be mentioned here uh, when we talk about all the fish in the sea. So if you see a school of fish or you're snorkeling, uh, they don't tend to hang around you. They kind of get away from you. There's this ecosystem that God put in place in the post-flood world, right? It's an ecosystem that things killed each other and we kill for food, and that just didn't really exist before. 
But now, at this point, things are different. Uh, by the way, domestic animals didn't seem to be mentioned here, and that's because God designed domestic animals to serve us. So, you know, cows don't tend to run away from you, uh, you know, uh, generally. Uh, sheep, you know. Uh, you see, God set it up for us. That's the point. He blessed Noah, and he changed things so that they could survive. All of them could survive. And now he called mankind to be carnivorous. Can I hear an amen? I always think when I get to this passage of scripture, I would never add to the word of God. But if I was going to, I might say something about veal. I know some of you might be upset by that, but it does say everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Wow. That tells us something about how things have changed. A lot has changed since the flood. Now, plants and trees were originally given to mankind and for the animals for food. This is the way God designed it. Bird, marine life, all three categories of animal life were herbivorous at first. It's hard to imagine, right? Because we see some of these wild animals, we think, how could they live? Well, things are different. In fact, we were different in many ways. God changed our environment and it affected us. There was a greater need and is a greater need for animal protein in our diet. And in the diet of all those post-flood, they needed different vitamins and things that they could no longer get from their environment. And God designed it so that animal protein would provide those B vitamins, amino acids, and the other things we need to stay healthy. Now, some people choose to be uh, vegetarians. And that's okay. Uh, That's up to you. You don't know what you're missing out on. Tell you, you know, you've had some veal. I'm going to mention veal a few times. It's going to rattle a few people's feathers because some people don't like the way they treat the cows. You're eating it, so I don't know how much I'm concerned about that. But I will say this: that um, there are there are things that shouldn't be done to animals in the process of the food supply. I agree with that, and I'm being a little comical. Although I'm sure I'm going to get uh, some kind of a PETA uh, email this week. Um, for having a little fun. And that's all I'm doing. I honestly love animals. It's not about that. But I'm saying that when we consider our diet today, you have to recognize as a vegetarian or a vegan or some other diet, you're going to have to address those vitamins that you cannot get any other way. And there are substitutes. There are ways to get around it, but it's, it's almost imperfect in most cases. And so why is that important? Because we changed. Our, our chemical makeup was affected by the environment. And because of that, we have different needs. And God understood that. And so he now says to mankind, eat meat. That, that's, that's something to consider. Now, later on, the dietary changes uh, in, in the Jews' diet included restrictions for health reasons. Um, And some of those restrictions made a lot of sense. Until recently, pork wasn't always safe. You had to cook it to death or you really, you could get trichinosis. Things have changed now. We we, we have a better uh, food supply and we don't have to worry as much about some of those things. But there were reasons for the dietary restrictions and there were reasons for this addition to man's diet. So I am a proud meat eater and I stand on biblical truth in saying I eat meat. If you don't, that's okay. I'll pray for you. You don't know what you're missing. Okay. 
He also restricted mankind from eating the blood of animals with the meat, and I am perfectly okay with that. That is not something I would want to do, but it is a profound scientific truth that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Leviticus tells us that, Leviticus 17.11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, there are some people that eat things with blood in it. I'm not one of them. I, I do like my steak rare, but that's not the same thing. We're talking about blood. Blood and, and meat that is not properly drained of blood can be extremely unhealthy to eat. It is a good way to get sick. Blood is an appropriate offering in sacrifice, but never acceptable for consumption. And I want you to keep that in mind that, you know, there are some people that, that, that I think there are... Th- certain dishes that, ugh. but anyway, for whatever reason, some people like this kind of thing. You're really taking a lot of chances when you eat something with blood in it. And that's why Jews have kosher meat, because it's drained properly. And actually, it comes right alongside the proper preparation of meat that we experience in, in all that the meat is provided in the supermarket. So I'm, I'm just saying this, uh, you got to really be careful. I mean, I don't think you're going to go to hell if you eat something with blood in it, but it is certainly not good for you. Let's put it that way. And we see that brought out here. He also established capital punishment as the basis for criminal law and human government. Did you see that? Did you see that? Capital punishment. I'm going to go back and read just the one quote there. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. So those who would look to the Bible and say, well, God is love. He would never want us to take a life. Look at the first Ten Commandments, right? They look at those commandments, thou shalt not kill. Kill and execute are different words for a reason. I am a believer in capital punishment. I think it has to be used in a way that makes sense, and there has to be law, because you certainly don't want to uh, imprison and execute someone wrongfully. Uh, But at the same time, to say as a Christian, well, God would never want this, disregards this passage of scripture and others that tell us clearly if you murder someone right and we're talking about cold-blooded murder one right premeditated murder in the first degree that the penalty for that is capital punishment Uh, I I would add a few things to capital punishment uh, but generally it should be in only very severe severe crimes but here God establishes it Now, the blood of animals was considered sacred. And if you don't believe that, then why did God demand the blood of animals and sacrifices? Sacred sacrifices. The same word, root, there, and certainly it means holy. So God understood the blood of all animals, mankind's blood as well, is sacred. It really is. It's why we don't eat it, and it's why it's used in sacrifice. Certainly the blood of man is more sacred, and yet has mankind spent way too much money and time trying to shed the blood of his fellow man. You know, while I am someone who supports capital punishment and and a a good justice system that protects us from ourselves, I also am against all war. I'm not a pacifist, but I don't understand why we fight wars unnecessarily or support wars unnecessarily. There are times when things have to be taken care of. We understand it. What's going on in Israel right now is, is more of a, a justice situation than a war, although it's turned into something of a war. We hope it doesn't escalate. Uh, there are wars going on in Europe, obviously in Ukraine, which, you know, I, I, to be honest, I, I 
I, I don't know why we get involved in things like that. We tend to cause more problems in the Middle East. We cause more problems in Europe and Asia and throughout the world when we get involved. I would like to see us not spend our money on war. Uh, so I'm just going to be honest with you, not a big fan of war. But I do know that blood is sacred. And we shed it so easily. And that's sad. It shouldn't be this way. But again, as we looked at that list from Romans, this is the world we live in and have always lived in. Now also notice that animals that attacked and killed men were to be killed. So while the blood is sacred, you have a bear rampaging up in Sussex County, you know, eating people. You have to deal with that. And people are like, oh, the poor bear. Well, yeah, but you know, your kids. I mean, I know they disobey, but you, oh, kids, go play in the yard. The bear is out. I will say that it, it's, it's sad when that has to happen, but you realize that there really is no other hope at that point. It's only going to get worse. And God also gives us some wisdom on that. It makes sense. Although there are some people that want to, I think the federal government wants to put grizzly bears in neighborhoods out in the, the West. And I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't end well. But anyway, we'll move on. So murderers were to be executed for killing their fellow man made in the image of God. Do you realize that all men and women are made in the image of God? We've talked about this a lot. In the image of God. It means we have a spirit, we have a soul, but also the image of God, the likeness of God. But the image of God speaks of God's spiritual nature. God is spirit. We worship him in spirit and truth. We have a spirit. So when you execute a, a, a wicked person according to the law, that person's spirit is going to go before God for judgment. And when someone is murdered or abused, that person is made in the image of God. I, I think we need to think about that. When we, when we carpet bomb areas of our world and destroy innocent lives, these people are made in the image of God. We are doing far more damage than we realize in this universe. And I know I sound like I'm a protester today. I'm, not, I'm just looking at the word of God and realizing we've really strayed far from God's truth, haven't we? Haven't we? And I'm the first one to say there are times where force is the only response that makes sense. I'm not going to weigh in on every war, but I, I kind of feel like the last war that made any sense to me was World War II. You know? And even that. It's horrible when mankind has to behave in a way that causes the death of his fellow human beings. So, God blessed Noah, but he also laid down some of these rules, and it was for their best. It was, it was, these blessings were, were, were not only blessings, but they were uh, directives, commandments that they could follow to continue to be blessed. If you follow these rules or commandments, you'll be blessed. That's the point. But he also established an unconditional covenant with Noah and his sons. Let's look at verses 8 through 17. Now, this is a covenant. Covenant is a promise. And there are many made throughout the history of mankind by God with his people. In this case, it's with Noah and all of mankind. And this covenant is given to us in verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. That's all of us, by the way. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you. Every living creature on earth. 
I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth, And the rainbow appears in the clouds. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. And whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting, notice everlasting, covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So he made that very clear. Now, there's a lot in there, but this was God's first covenant. Uh, Unless you consider the first rule, which was don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That was not a covenant. That, That was a rule. That was the first commandment. And, of course, they broke that commandment. Sin entered the world. Later on, Moses gives us ten commandments with a number of different ceremonial laws. But ultimately, Jesus boils it down to two. And he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you take those ten commandments, you can narrow them down to one of two categories, those two great commandments on which all the law and the prophets hang. So, what is this? This isn't a commandment. This is a promise. This is a covenant. And we know that we live in new covenant times, a covenant made in Christ's blood, which we'll be talking about as we receive communion today. But this is one of the many covenants. As we go through the book of Genesis, we'll see there was a covenant with Abraham. There, were, there, were, there was the covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament, and the new covenant. Uh, but this covenant here is really the first with mankind, and it is an everlasting covenant. It was not just with Noah and his sons, but with all their descendants, of which we can count ourselves. And it was also with all the animals that had been within the ark and the earth itself. He would never again destroy all the living creatures on the earth with a flood. That is a promise. And the reason God can make that promise is, given our our climate today, given the way the the earth is post-flood, it's really rather impossible for there to be a global flood. See, that's one of the problems that people who are naysayers to the flood account in the Bible it's one of the problems they have. They assume, and Peter talks about this in, in his second epistle, they assume that everything is exactly as it is today. And it's true. Today, a global worldwide flood is impossible. It really is because of the way our earth is today. But before the flood, it was not only possible, it happened. The world was very different before the flood. But God made this covenant And he gave the rainbow as a sign of his everlasting covenant with mankind. Now, a rainbow requires small water droplets in the air in order to form in the atmosphere. So the water vapor canopy in the pre-flood world prevented rain on the earth. It had never rained. The pre-flood world didn't experience rain. It was a completely different climate. And that rainfall was now possible... uh, And that rainfall was now possible, made a worldwide rainstorm impossible. 
That cannot happen today, but it happened then. And remember, it wasn't just the rain. It was the waters of the great deep. It was that water vapor layer talked about in Genesis 1 that condensed and and unleashed itself on the earth called the floodgates of the heavens. So it wasn't just rain. It was so much more than that. So here's the problem. You have to assume the Bible's true from Genesis 1-1 for the rest of the book to make any sense. So people dispute 1-1, so guess what? Now the flood doesn't exist, you know, uh, the Tower of Babel didn't happen, uh, none of the other descriptions make any sense because you've undermined the Bible by disputing Genesis 1-11. through And if you're familiar with Answers in Genesis, I'm a big fan of that organization. If you have any questions and would like to delve further into this, AnswersInGenesis.com is a great resource. Most of what I'm sharing with you comes from resources like Answers in Genesis. And you have an intelligent response to scientific theory that would dispute scientific theory in favor of a biblical worldview. And it is a scientific approach And I don't really believe it can be argued with. I think it's very clear that the things we read in the Bible are true. Amen? Okay. So that rainfall was now possible made a worldwide rainstorm impossible. And therefore God could make a covenant. And the rainbow in the cloud is a a perpetual reminder of God's grace even in judgment. That's what the rainbow symbolizes. Now, the rainbow happens through scientific means, but God understood that now that the climate was different, rainbows would appear in the sky under those conditions when it it rained. And shortly after the rainstorm, many times, not always, many times we are treated to a spectacular display of color. A few weeks ago, we saw a double rainbow, and it was absolutely gorgeous when we were driving, and this happens often. But if you were looking at it from heaven, it's actually a ring. We only see the ark. But it's actually a ring. The, the light would, would make a rainbow in a ring form. So there's that covenant. And, you know, those of us who are married wear a ring. And it's that idea of making a promise. And the rainbow is not an arc. It's actually a ring. Now, I want to say one thing about the rainbow. Because what's sad to me is uh, I learned in school Roy Jabiv. How many here remember Roy Jabiv? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, right? It was one of the things we, the, the colors of the rainbow. <clears throat> And the rainbow is a beautiful sign of God's grace and mercy. Sadly, in our culture today, the rainbow has been hijacked uh, by those who would promote sin. And it promotes homosexual relationships and lesbianism and other things. And it's sad, when I see a rainbow flag with six colors, not seven, I realize they're not testifying to God's grace and mercy. They're abusing God's grace and mercy by suggesting that love is more important than obedience. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So both are important. Love is important. We acknowledge love, but we also acknowledge truth here at Calvary Chapel. And I almost, just because I'm a scutch, uh, by the way, that's a North Jersey Italian word for scutch. No, I'm just kidding. Um, It's just someone who likes to start trouble sometimes. You're really going to not think well of me after I tell you this. Like, I see people flying that flag. It's not really a rainbow because it's got six colors. I like almost want to fly one with seven colors with a picture of Jesus on it or something just to irk people. But see, God would never allow me to do that. I'm probably on dangerous ground even mentioning that I would want to do that. But our rainbow has seven colors. That rainbow is not a rainbow at all. It's a violation of God's truth. And so you'll never see that here Even a seven-color rainbow, when I see it now, I'm like, what's, you know, 
um, conditioned, but we really shouldn't be conditioned. If you happen to see a rainbow, uh, it, it, maybe in the Sunday school or the kids drew rainbows, that's a real rainbow. This rainbow that we see celebrated today is not. Amen? Okay. So, remember, it's a perpetual reminder of God's grace even in judgment. And in this, it, there's some truth because those people that disobey God are experiencing God's grace, not his judgment, not yet. And so we pray for them. We desire for them to know the truth and experience grace, not judgment. Okay, did you hear what I said? Grace, not judgment. We don't want them to be judged, which is why we share the truth of God's word. Because we love with the truth. Amen? Okay. Now, God blessed Noah's sons, and they had the ability to reproduce and increase their numbers on the earth. And so we read in verse 18, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're told in parentheses, Ham was the father of Canaan. Uh, This is Moses compiling uh, the historical accounts, and I do believe that this is put in parentheses by Moses, letting those who read the word know that this was the the Canaanites, which, of course, were the enemies of Israel, were descended from Ham. He's letting us know that there. And these, uh, these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. So everyone is descended from one of these three sons. So Noah's sons and their wives are the ancestors of each and every human being alive today. The gene pool from these six individuals could provide for all of the genetic variations we observe today. Absolutely can. Absolutely could. So it's not as if we look around and we see people, as I talked about last week, different shades of color, different ethnic backgrounds, different looks. It's not as if that couldn't be the case from these six individuals. In fact, given the time and the genetic variation, the way genetics work, this is exactly what we expect would be the result. By the way, the world's population, which is near on 8 billion at this point, could easily have been developed in 4,000 years. Uh, There's no reason to assume that it couldn't. Some people look at that and they think, well, there's not enough time. Oh, no, actually, an average annual growth rate of 0.5%, half a percent, right, could have easily accomplished this. That is, over 4,000 years, 8 billion people. This is an average family size of only 2.5 children per family, which is about a quarter of the present rate. So when you factor in death and disease and different conditions, uh, it's not hard to imagine. We got here from this moment, 8 billion people with genetic variation, just as God said. So there's no reason to dispute the truth. Now, we get to the final days of Noah after the flood. And this is, this is important because this is really where I want to land today. That, that's sort of the housekeeping. I wanted to go through some of those things. Obviously, they're important. But I think this is probably more important this morning. And as I opened talking about disobeying parents, we're going to see a dishonoring of Noah by one of his sons, his son Ham. Let's uh, read in verse 20. Uh, I'm going to read verses 20 through 27. Now Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham... We're told again, the father of Canaan saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth 
took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, that is Jehovah or Yahweh, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem, and may God extend the territory of Japheth. And may Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. Let's just stop there for a minute. It's sad to say that people have looked at this scripture and abused it, misinterpreted it completely. Uh, I'll address some of that as we go through it. But first, it's important to note, there is a prophecy that's given here. It's a prophecy of Noah concerning his sons and their descendants. And it starts with Noah planting a vineyard. And after several years, he's able to produce some wine. So this, this goes a few years in the future from the end of the flood. Clearly, he was a farmer before the flood, as were many who lived at that time, and it would have taken him at least a year or two to harvest the grapes and make wine. Now, he apparently became intoxicated after drinking a little too much of his wine, and he then fell asleep while he was still undressed. Now, a lot has been made of this. Some people try to excuse Noah by saying, well, the world of the flood was so different, the fermentation process changed, and as a result, he didn't know what he was doing. He got drunk. It's not hard to imagine that happening if you drink a little bit too much wine, okay? We can leave it at that. I don't think we need to defend him or explain it. It happened. It's been known to happen, okay? I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't drink anymore because it happens, okay? This is what happens, and it can be worse than this, all right? So, he apparently became intoxicated and fell asleep while he was still undressed. And then Noah's son Ham publicly mocked his father to his own shame. He made fun of him. As some might, seeing somebody in this condition make fun of them or mock them, and of course this is his father. So the issue is more less about him getting drunk and more about the way his son behaved. You know, when we talk about covering the sins of others, we sort of look to minimize people's failures and shortcomings and sins. And if you make much of it, then you're really a, a, very, a very unkind person. And we're finding out that Ham apparently was. By the way, Noah's son Ham publicly mocked his father to his own shame. To his own shame. And this is the second time we're told that Ham was the father of Canaan. I want to remind you. The Israelites reading this had enemies. They were the Canaanites. So it's important that Moses establishes up front where the Canaanites came from and what apparently is at the source of their bad behavior. Noah cursed not just Ham, but his grandson. And of course, Noah's son Shem and Japheth, they showed tremendous respect for their father at this time. They did. They did the right thing. Ham did the wrong thing. So Noah curses his grandson. And and if you read this, you think to yourself, oh, wait a minute. Ham was the one that did this. Why would he curse Canaan? And it's a good question. But remember the perspective. We're looking back with Moses at the Canaanites. We're observing the horrific behavior. By the way, the Canaanites were terrorists. They were human traffickers. They were slave traders. They were thoroughly wicked. 
But even God said until the Canaanites' wickedness, their sin had come to to its full reckoning, God would be merciful even until that point. But then there came a point where God raised up Israel to bring his judgment, not Israel's judgment, God's judgment upon the Canaanites. Now the Canaanites were wicked people. They did wicked things and God was bringing his judgment. Just the way God brought judgment against his own people, Israel, through the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Medo-Persians. Over and over again, we see God bringing judgment against his own people through other peoples, but we also see God using Israel to bring judgment against the Canaanites. Now, I'm not going to weigh in on the controversy today so much, because I don't know that it's even applicable. But I do know this. At that time, those that lived in the Middle East were so wicked that God brought judgment and he used Israel to bring it. Years later, Israel was so wicked that he used the Babylonians to bring judgment. So it's, this isn't like God is pro-Israel or God is, 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 is pro-Palestinian. It, it, it's about God bringing judgment against wickedness, whether it's his people or those who persecute his people. Let's understand that. But the Canaanites, back to this, why Canaan? Why was, well, we're finding out who the Canaanites were. That started somewhere, and apparently it started with Ham. Now, here's what we do know. Noah cursed his grandson Canaan for Ham's disrespect toward him. Noah did not directly curse his own son Ham for two possible reasons. Now, here's what I think. I may be wrong. First, Ham was uh, Noah's youngest son. Ham was Noah's youngest son, just as Canaan was Ham's youngest son. So they were both youngest sons. And this may emphasize that this curse extended to all of Ham's descendants. It might actually be a curse against Ham and all of his descendants, just given to us through the lens retrospectively from the Israelites' perspective looking at the Canaanites. It's very well that it wasn't just a curse against one particular branch of the line of Ham, but all of them. That's the first thing. Now, this may emphasize that this curse extended to all of his descendants. Now, another thing to think about, Noah had no doubt already observed the sinful character of Ham's descendants. It doesn't take long to figure out somebody is a sinful person and difficult to deal with, even as a child, right? Let's be honest with ourselves. All of you probably know that you have some good kids and some bad kids, right? I mean, if you're going to be honest, some of your kids are better behaved than others. You, you, you raise them the same way. You give them the same advantages. You feed them. You take care of them. You clothe them. You do everything you can. <clears throat> and, and, and sometimes kids are like, well, you're mom's favorite. Well, my grandmother had a saying about favorites. She had three. I was one of them. Just saying. I was number three of the three, but I was one of the three. And everyone used to criticize my grandmother. They would say, you know, you can't have favorites. You shouldn't have favorites. It's not right. You shouldn't have favorites. And to a degree, I agree, but I was one of the favorites. I don't care. (laughs) No, I'm kidding, of course. But, But here's what I do know. I said, Graham, why do you have favorites? She goes, you know who my favorites are? The ones I see. And it was true. The, the grandchildren that actually visited her and had a relationship with her were her favorites. That's what she meant when she said, my favorites. It was because she understood some of the kids couldn't be bothered with her, and some of us loved her very much and spent a lot of time with her. So 
I think it's fair to say that God doesn't play favorites. We know this. The scripture says he shows no partiality. Over and over again, we see that he's not a respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. And yet, what is it about certain people groups that they seem to have a closer relationship with God? Or all of you, for that matter. Do you spend time with God? Do you know God? Do you seek God? If you will, and I, I, don't, want, I don't want to be uh, on dangerous theological ground, but if God were to have favorites, and he doesn't, it would be those he sees, those he spends time with, those that spend time with him. Amen? So those that defy God, it's not that he doesn't love them. He loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not as if he, he, he doesn't want you to be one of his. But if you defy him and reject him and behave badly, you can't blame God. So back to kids. It doesn't take long to realize there's sometimes a troublemaker. Sometimes it's the middle child or the older child or the youngest. But at the end of the day, it, it comes down to each individual. They are born with the tendencies and the behavior and the character they have to a great degree. It is amazing. You see them as infants and they do things and then they get older, they still do the same things and you're the same way. And the sin nature wreaks havoc in the heart of some of our children. And, and it's sad because in some ways, it's not entirely their fault, but they feed that dragon, you know? Let's say a child has a tendency toward anger. Well, if that child feeds that anger, he becomes a very angry adult. Or if the child is born with a proclivity and a desire uh, for substance abuse, and this happens. Again, some of that is DNA. Some of that is that, that layer of our DNA that we inherit from our parents, And yet, if you feed that, you're worse off. So we're still accountable for our choices. We still have to make good choices. So apparently, Ham was one of those people. Had a little bit of a desire to be disrespectful, practical jokes. He was a scutch. And because of it, I suspect his children were similar. And that's another thing. Uh, If you, as a parent, behave a certain way... Even if your child doesn't have a proclivity to behave that way, they're going to imitate you, and they're going to behave the same way. And so whatever the case was, I wasn't there, I don't know. Ham had a child. That child was Noah's grandson. His name was Canaan. And he's the father of the Canaanites. And for Noah, uh, excuse me, Moses, to mention this in Noah's time is a way of explaining, well, listen, now we know why. Now we understand the beginning of this and the curse It was important that they understood that God had projected forward in time and declared a prophecy that included a curse. Because they're going to go into the land and they're going to slay each and every last person among the Canaanites, men, women, and children. And they needed to understand that this was God's judgment. And this is oftentimes used as a proof text to show that God is hateful and not loving at all. That's another whole topic, but let me say it this way. People that do this believe they're doing what God has told them to do. In the case of the Israelites, they were doing what God told them to do to the Canaanites. In the case of some people today, some groups, terror groups, and other ethnic groups, they believe that they're doing what God has told them to do. So when they come in and they slaughter men, women, and children, it's not any different than what the Israelites did except... That that was God's judgment, and these people doing it today believe 
that what they're doing is God's judgment. No one can argue that what they're doing, they believe, is right. But it's, it's an argument, and, and it gives fuel to the fire to people supporting what Hamas does. Because they look at the Bible and they say, well, Israel did it, and it's true. Let, let's not run away from the truth. They did do the same thing. But the difference is God's word tells us it's because of God's word. He cursed them, and he called them, and he commanded them to do that. And that's a little comfort if you're on the receiving end of that, but let's understand why. In the case of Israel, these people were being destroyed by God's hand. I know that's hard to stomach. I know that's hard to understand. But remember, remember what we just read about the justice of capital punishment. Remember that, that God told us, if you shed blood, you, your, your blood is going to be shed. They were only executing God's judgment and justice on groups of people. And that's a larger topic, and we'll get into it eventually. But just understand, it's, it's a complicated scenario when you have these conversations with others about the behavior of terrorists today and Israel in the past. It, it, it's, it's, it's quite an onion that you have to peel over and over again. So don't be so quick to just say, well, God said so. It's a, it's a much deeper subject that you really need to understand if you're going to talk about it. But back to Canaan. Noah's prophecy simply foretold Canaan's future and his destiny given his sinful character. It didn't make him this way. It simply predicted what would happen. Okay? It's not as if Noah cursed Canaan and that's why the Canaanites were so bad. No, he cursed them because he knew what would happen and predicted what would happen. And sure enough, God's word is true. They did behave in the way that God said they would. That's the point that I want to make clearly today. Okay, now, Canaan's descendants would become the lowest of slaves to his brothers. This was fulfilled when they were driven out of their land by the Israelites, and they then became the reluctant servants of the descendants of Shem. By the way, when we say Semitic, that is a word that comes from Shem, Semitic. And by the way, the Shemites or the Semites include far more people than just the Jews. They would later become the reluctant servants of the descendants of Japheth as well. Noah refers to God, Jehovah, as the God of the descendants of Shem. They would ultimately have a very special relationship. Remember I told you about, not favorite, special relationship with Jehovah or Yahweh. The descendants of Canaan would ultimately serve them. This is being predicted here and now and is quoted by Moses as he compiles this book so that they'll understand what they're called to do in the future. Noah predicts that God will extend the territory of the descendants of Japheth as well because they acted honorably, Shem and Japheth. It bears out in the character of their descendants and they are blessed by God. They would ultimately inherit that special relationship with God as well. And we'll talk about this in future studies. Who are the descendants of Japheth? Who are the descendants of Ham? Who are the descendants of Shem? And I don't want to get into that today. But this is the prediction. So the descendants of Canaan uh, would ultimately serve the descendants of Japheth and Shem. That's the point. And then we get to the death of Noah. And in verse 28, after the flood... Noah lived 350 years, and altogether Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. So that's a long life. Noah had Shem, Ham, and Japheth after he was 500 years old, and his other sons and daughters were ungodly. 
We believe he had other sons and daughters, but they were ungodly. And so they perished in the flood, and only three of his sons chose to go with him on the ark. Japheth was the elder. Ham was the younger of the three, we're told. And this means that Shem was somewhere in the middle. He was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and he lived 350 years. Again, the earth was so different pre-flood that people had longer lifespans. And when the floodwaters came on the earth, he was 600, lived 350 years after the flood, grand total of 950 years, one of the longest living men uh, that's recorded in the Bible. He died, by the way, this you might find interesting, just two years before Abraham was born. Two years before Abraham is born, he dies. His son Shem died just 25 years before the death of Abraham. So there's quite an overlap there. Throughout most of the life of Abraham, you have someone that actually was on the ark. That helps us to understand how the history was communicated from patriarch to patriarch. And of course, as we prepare for communion, I want to mention this. The worship team can come up and get themselves together. I've mentioned this before, and and it really helps us to understand and interpret the book of Genesis. In chapter 10 and verse 1, we read, This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. So this is the account of the sons of Noah. They, They compiled everything from the last time we saw this quote all the way to chapter 10, verse 1. So this is the fourth occurrence of the formula which marks the key subdivisions of this book. Moses uses this word in Hebrew, toledoth, or generations, ten times in the book of Genesis. It's the word that we use to get the name of the book, Genesis in Greek. The Greek renders it Genesis, which is translated in the Greek New Testament genealogy. So these are the genealogies of specific individuals. We have the genealogies of Adam and that of Noah, right? We also started with the generations or the genealogy of the heavens and the earth given by God. And now we get to this fourth occurrence, and here uh, each major division can be recognized by the recurring phrase. So that's where you know you transfer from one account, historical account, to the next. And even though it's included in chapter uh, 10, it's actually the last verse of this account. This is the account of, of course, Noah's sons would have had personal knowledge of all of the events Chapter 6 through 9, they lived through it. And this section was originally written by them with their verse, uh, this verse as their signature. We've talked about this before, that this phrase, it represents the writer's signatures. They conclude their individual accounts. We get the bibliography. We know where the source is. So why do we dispute the book of Genesis' history? Because we don't like the implications. It means we're morally accountable. This terminology of Ancient Babylonian tablets confirms this practice. This was common in that time. Each of these patriarchs kept the narrative records of his own generation and scribed them on stone or clay tablets and then appended their name to the end. So I'm saying this so you know you can trust the book of Genesis as history. It's not a myth. It's the truth. And they gave the tablets to the next person the next in line to continue the narrative. And these tablets eventually came down to Moses, who wrote the last section of the book of Genesis. And we have this book, which he organized and edited all of the original narratives under divine inspiration, God leading him to do so. And so the result was that the entire collection finally became the first five books of Moses. So I want you to trust the biblical account. And as we close, I I, I want you to remember what I opened with and what we saw here in the Word. How important it is that we 
obey our parents, respect our elders, honor our mother and father. The promise is that it will go well in the land. So the thing I take away from today's study, among all the history and interesting scientific information, the most important practical thing is that we, we struggle and strive to maintain the family structure. Uh, it is the foundation of society. And as it's undermined, like the word of God, it brings a terrible outcome. We're living that darkness today. The breakdown of the family, which in some cases is intentional in certain cultures, but the breakdown of the family is the reason we find ourselves where we are today. It brings all of the other different ills of society. So what can we do about it? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to go back to Jesus' commandments, the two great commandments, honor the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? which we're about to do by receiving communion. But we have to remember the second commandment, which is the second great commandment. It's like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it starts with honoring your father and your mother. It starts with honoring your elders. Loving each other, being kind to one another. This is how we find ourselves out of this mess we've gotten ourselves into. It is love. It is. There, there, those people protesting are right about that. It should be love, not war. It should be kindness. It shouldn't be killing. It shouldn't be those things. There will be a time when God brings his judgment. But right now, God is not calling you to bring judgment. He's not calling us to bring judgment. He's calling us to communicate his great love for mankind. So how do we do that? Well, some of you are raising children, and you need to teach your children. You need to demand from them respect. I think, let's see if I can get this right. I was speaking to a teacher at my job in my career. And uh, I hope I remember this quote, but she was talking about the fact that, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, that was the, the three R's. And she said, we need to add the other three, reverence, respect, and responsibility. And those are the three most important things, and those are the things that are not being taught in public schools. So parents, reverence for God, respect for one another, and a responsibility to serve your fellow man. This is how we bring change to our culture. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson in your word, and we see this disrespect. We also recognize people disrespect you. They're irreverent. They disrespect their family members. They disrespect everyone around them. Help us to teach these things by example, revering you, respecting others, and being responsible. That is being obedient to your word. Lord, we can't change anyone else, but we can bring change into our own lives by being obedient to you. And it starts with acknowledging what we're about to acknowledge in communion, that you came and died on the cross for our sins. You rose again on the third day to give us newness of life. You died on the cross for us and rose again for us. And you're coming again for us. It's all about us. And we need to make our lives all about you. Lord, we're so grateful for your great love. We pray that we would be the people that teach the next generation about these important things. Teach them the word of God. It's the only way they're going to be able to bring honor to you and bring peace to our world. Lord God, we pray that we would have that impact, that we would be able to affect change in this way as you've commanded us. May we be empowered by your spirit to obey your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.